0: go david mcwilliams thank you so much for joining us on Scotonomics as part of our small nation series it's brilliant to have you spend some time with us today
1: not at all not at all it's a, it's a pleasure you know as somebody whose great grandparents are scottish his grandparents are my dad was scottish my grandparents are scottish Great grandparents are from Oost, miles away, up the bloody yeah, yeah. up in the Hebrides. Yeah. Uh, well, so, yeah,
0: there's, there's so many connections between Scotland and Ireland, and that's really what, what we wanted to look at today. Um, as part of the small nation series. Uh, so usually it's around.
1: Irish people going to Scotland. There's very few Scots coming the other way. I think our family was just this weird, this weird crowd who said,
2: Oh, there she goes. <laughs> no, 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 there's, no. There's a there's a big Irish diaspora in the west coast of Scotland. Oh, yeah, 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 yeah. my great grandfather was Irish. Yeah, absolutely. Yeah, no. the, the, the Van Swedens of Donegal. No, that's my husband's name. <laughs> <laughs> the great, no, the Robert- great letter Kenny name, the Van Swedens. <laughs> no, Robertson's my maiden name, Robertson.
1: Yeah. <laughs> great. Anyway, no, no, it's great, it's great. It's, it's, it's lovely to talk to both well, of you.
0: What would be really good to start is for you to give us a flavour of the, the Irish economy as we enter kind of 2022. I mean, what underpins the economy, its size, the general flows, and, and and where does the wealth of the nation come from?
1: I think it's a very, very good question, and it goes to the root, I presume, of what Scotland might be about to embark on. Uh, the, the wealth of Ireland is now... Significant, reasonably, now reasonably evenly spread. If you look at things, for example, called the Gini coefficient in economics, Ireland is probably buying in the European average. The Brit- Britain, now that it's not even counted anymore in the European average, Britain is a little bit below, you know, Germany a little bit above. So, in general, the wealth after tax and public spending uh, is reasonably well spread on an income basis. On a wealth basis it's not. So the very, very wealthy are still profoundly uh, wealthy in comparison to the average. But what is fascinating is the journey that Ireland has been on since I was a kid. So we were born in Ireland in the late 1960s, my generation, uh, just managed to make it into the Gen Xers, which is kind of nice, uh, because you really don't want to be a boomer these days and uh, we're
0: next don't worry we're next
1: yeah well we were we were we were born into a i remember when i was in university the economist magazine uh led with a big article about ireland and it had a picture of a woman woman begging on o'connell street was the front page and it said ireland the poorest of the rich so we were a poor country in a rich area and All my university class emigrated, myself included. Uh, None of us felt that there was a future in our country, a future that was material for us. Um, And then it turned around. And then the question is, how did that happen? So to give you a snapshot now, the GDP of the country is a little bit jaundiced by multinational figures. So there's there's a GNI. We can use a couple of, uh, of figures, all of which show that the Irish... Income is around 300 billion plus per year, which is a phenomenal figure for a small country. It's also a phenomenal figure from a country that used to be very, very poor. Mm-hmm. Uh, the We now have the highest rate of immigration in Europe. We have a higher percentage of foreign born people than anywhere else in, the, in Europe, including the UK. Uh, we don't have, as of yet, a very significant anti-immigration Urge, although I think that will probably emerge. Um, the the key story in Ireland was the following: when, when you go independent, we went independent 100 years ago. This is actually just yesterday, we just mm-hmm. came up with it, and we had no money, and no capital, and no networks, and no industry. So you start with an aspiration, and as I've said to Brexiteers, you know. Irish people, we can really, we can really understand their yearning, or your yearning for uh, flags and sovereignty and all that good stuff. But you know, a bit of advice is, I understand that the first seventy years is the hardest, and then it gets easier after that. And yeah, our first seventy years was very hard. We made lots and lots of mistakes. We became a theocracy. We became far too Catholic, far too rigid. We scared people away. All that sort of stuff. We did everything. If you had actually taken like a blank piece of paper, as I have here and said, what not to do? We did all that stuff, right? Um, But you learn from your mistakes and we've learned from our mistakes. And the key thing is when you have no capital, you have to make it cheap. So how do you make it cheap? You have to get other people to deploy capital in your jurisdiction that you don't have. So you tax it less. I mean, it's the basic idea. And uh, once you tax it less, capital and money flows very much like water. It flows in the path of least resistance. So if you put up resistance to it by taxing it a lot or putting conditions on it, then it won't come near you because capital has many, many options. But if you actually make it very easy to deploy capital here, then it'll come. And as a result of that, there are about 400,000 Irish people who work in multinationals. Um, They have a much higher income per head. They have much better working conditions, despite, and it's interesting, having no uh, union representation, most American multinationals do not allow trade unions uh, but the working conditions in the main are much much uh, better than they are in the local economy and the reason is productivity is very high so once you have very very high levels of productivity because you have very level high level of productivity because you have very high levels of capital in those mm. places that, so that's, that's one growth story but I'd like to think it's much more interesting than that. I think that the major change in Ireland, and I suspect Scotland will have to go through this too, is a change with respect to risk-taking and a change with respect to small and even micro-entrepreneurship. So when I was a kid, when the Catholic Church were extremely dominant here, and the state was very dominant too, wrapped in a sort of a nationalist idea that that this was, our way forward was actually looking backwards. Um, That level of dogma in the society had a a number of effects but the main one I believe from the economic perspective is it drove away people who were dissenters, people who dissented from conventional opinion and people who were actually very creative. And those people ended up in London or New York or any of those places. They, in Scotland, some of them. But I'm talking about the late 1990s, early 2000s. So we had this bizarre situation. We educated lots of people. We gave them the self-confidence to be different, self-confidence to do things for themselves. And yet we imposed upon them a very strict moral dogma. Now, I believe there's a re- significant relationship between morality and economics between freedom and economics, between liberalism and tolerance and embracing those who are different. And if you look at our society, the major difference in Ireland, I believe, in the last 30 years, is that people who were hunted out of the country for being gay, for example, for having different uh, attitudes towards social, Catholic social thinking, those people now live here and they're welcomed here. And what you see is I think that commercial self-expression and individual sexual self-expression, moral self-expression, political, are one of the same things that the type of people who create companies are by very definition unusually cussed, strange, iconoclastic folk, right? They don't want a boss, they don't want a job, they don't want a wage, they don't want insurance, they don't want anything telling them what to do. They are the dissenters. And unless and until you make them welcome in society, those dissenters will leave, and you'll be left with a population that doesn't want to back themselves in the great journey, what I would call, of, you know, the modern economy. So I see... Most Irish economists say we attracted in foreign capital, and that's what the story is. And that's what I would call it the big man in history idea. I'm much more in the little, I'm much more interested in the little woman in history. What actually happened on the ground level that changed the society? So the big man in history says some very, very clever civil servant pulled a lever, and as a result, it's a kind of hydraulic Keynesianism, right? And as a result of that. The economy, group—that that is part of the story. But I would say a much more interesting part is the relationship between sexual and social tolerance and acceptance and economic growth. And what you see in Ireland is the correlation between when we became tolerant and when we became rich is very, very close. So that I would believe is part of the story too, that you cannot mm-hmm. divorce the economy from the social context uh, therein. And dogma is very, very, very bad for economics, right? No matter what dogma it is, because what you do is you exclude a huge part. So to tell you the snapshot of the Irish economy is growth is strong, wealth generation is strong. Most people put that down to the multinationals. I would say there's another story which is that wealth generation comes from innovation and innovation comes from creative people who get up in the morning and say, I can do something better. I can figure things out. And they back themselves. So it's a a strange combination of social tolerance and economic exuberance that has actually, I think, driven the story here as opposed to just a simple... There's lots of multinationals. Yeah.
0: So so do you think that's the secret then of of blending that um what people were doing with the capital that was coming into the country at the right time that that, that has made Ireland so peculiar? I mean, Ireland's GDP is bigger than Norway's and it's fifty percent bigger than Scotland. No, so so it's it, it looks it it looks like there's something very peculiar yeah.
1: it, has, it has well, happened in Ireland. Well let's use the GNI figure which Tries to take out this this multinational uh, impact. Well, uh, yeah, I think I think you know I think the world is so complicated, so complex that no one reason can explain why X or Y happens. That we live in a world of the law of unintended consequences. That even the best uh, laid plans mm-hmm. get changed. So I, I'm much more a believer in in, in, in sort of. This rather new idea of evolutionary economics, I'm much more persuaded by that than any of the stuff I learned and unfortunately I teach, but we're gonna change that. <laughs> and so therefore, uh, I think that uh, there have been numerous occasions where countries grow very, very quickly. Um, ironically, Northern Ireland grew incredibly quickly between about 1870 and 1920, and that region. Um, driven by a lot lot of, well, rather similar things, except they had the British Empire. The the British Empire is a very, very good example of making pretty shit products in Britain and forcing people to buy them around the world, which is why that once the British Empire collapsed, British manufacturing collapsed, because it wasn't actually good but in that
0: have, time as well they were stopping the home nations making any of competitive products so it wasn't yeah, just it, that products for crap it's the only thing that you could actually get a hold of as well yeah, so it's exactly. a fantastic so, strategy you can't knock it that's for sure
1: yeah so, so a business and i think so northern ireland bought into that big time and then when that kind of quasi-protectionist um, structure collapsed things went backwards so uh, you know I wouldn't, the, inter, the interesting thing is, countries can also get poor very quickly. So, you know, any casual observer of Latin America will know that Uruguay was mm. the Switzerland of Europe. Mm. It had universal suffrage, it had a free public health system, free public education system in the 19-teens, in the teens, right, and in the 1920s. And it, it's like Argentina was the seventh or eighth richest country in the world, and then it went backwards. So. Things, really bad things can happen to countries as well as really good things. So we've got
2: to be very aware of that. Um, You you actually interviewed um, a a Russian recently who made the very succinct point that uh, economics is really important, of of course. And I think more of our politicians have to have a better grasp on it. Um, But fundamentally, if you don't have good democracy this is also a big problem for any country as well, if, there's, if the, the democracy is poor. And you certainly can see that right now in the UK, in Westminster right now. That's very, very clear. Yeah. Uh, now, going back to the point that Ireland became independent from the UK, and do you think that at that time that people were just so desperate to be released from the oppressor that they didn't really have a plan economically? Because obviously once you became independent, um, you know, you could have your own currency, you could mobilise your real resources, and in the case of Ireland, you would lots and lots of young people to mobilise. So do you think yeah. that there just was a lack of imagination about what you could do once you were independent? Yeah, I think I,
1: there, were, there were basically two options open to Ireland. Uh, most independence movements, if you look at history, um, went down the sort of Marxist route uh, very, very quickly. And it makes sense because if you, if you take the Marxist view that imperialism is the pinnacle of capitalism, well, then if you actually try and uh, decolonize, you will naturally shift resources and nationalize them. And that goes with a, a suite of police. Ireland was unusual in that regard that it didn't do that. Uh, we were governed by an incredibly conservative administration in the first 10 or 15 years, most clearly evidenced, and this is important for Scotland, by our retention of sterling as the anchor currency in Ireland until 1979, right? So the Irish punt was valued one-to-one for sterling and never devalued against sterling. And the fear was that if we were to devalue against sterling, we would get the tiny amount of capital we had would fly to London. so in order to just even keep that pool of capital here we had to keep the the value of the currency attached to the currency of the oppressor ironically um so that would have severely limited our scope to involve ourselves in any sort of pump priming uh left-wing ideas but that be that as it may the, the first governments built a huge amount of social housing they remained democratic in the 1930s, which I think of small nations. None did in the 30s, actually, except for Ireland. I don't think there's any small nation in Europe that managed to remain democratic. Uh, so that's quite an achievement. Uh, Fianna Fáil, which were the, the gunmen, the so forth, Sinn Féin at the time, came in to the tent and actually remained true to democracy. So these are good things. Mm. But the problem for us is that we got taken over by a theocracy. Uh, you know, and um, and that sent us backwards a long, yeah. for a long, long time. But I mean, the independence, the, to come back to independence, a country can't grow up unless it's independent. That's the key, right? Like, there's nothing that focuses your mind more than a budget constraint. And there's nothing that tells you how you're doing more than a bond market right so if you've got to get up every morning and you want to build something you've got to go out and borrow it and you've got to say to people listen give us a few quid uh what rate of interest do you think we're going to charge you it, it's when i look at the regions of the united kingdom the countries in the united kingdom i just think they've been completely emasculated by london i mean it's been it's it, it's 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 been an extraordinary it's extraordinary for me to look at Scotland, which was attracting, and we talked about the Irish diaspora in Scotland. The reason Irish people were in Scotland was because it was a good bloody place to go, right? It was a place that had industry. There was a place that, and and and, and what I see is, uh, and, and again, having worked in the city of London and going up to the Scottish financial centres of Edinburgh and talking to the Scottish widows type people, kind of po-faced Eastern Scots, you know, uh, not that I disliked them, but there was a certain, there was a certain. Uh, it's oh, it was, different uh, in, in Ireland, Ireland. than
2: Glasgow. Yes, it is. Yeah, they it really different. did. I mean, it was. I'd never really been aware of this because my
1: grandparents ever talked about it. And they were a mix. They were half Prades, half Catholics. So they actually came to Ireland because Ireland was actually, it's amazing to think about it. They came to Ireland before the First World War because Dublin was more tolerant of their marriage than Glasgow would have been, which is kind of mental, right? But yeah. I remember going to, going to, Aberdeen and Edinburgh, pretty Edinburgh, and having these Scottish people who sounded English that I, I couldn't understand that first and secondly, they all these weird names, the kind of first names that were second names and second names that were first names, like Murray Campbell or Campbell Murray, and I was like, anyway, but they were they were the last vestiges of the Scottish finance industry in the late nineties, right? It's still there, but it's not as important. And what I could never understand about Scotland was how the country. Wasn't like Ireland. It didn't feel dynamic. It didn't feel effervescent. It felt, you know, pretty rich by European standards, pretty well off. But you know, the 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 Renaissance, the cultural Renaissance mm-hmm. that I kind of expected to feel, I didn't. And I, I think that comes down to not being independent. I really do. Like the thing about independence, it's like being a child. You. You, know, you, you make lots of mistakes some, sometimes you grow quickly sometimes your grow is stunted sometimes you do stupid things but you're a sovereign creature yeah. and, it, and there's and no one that's to blame the, that's the and that's a,
0: huge, that, that's a huge that's a huge huge issue with Scotland is that um um you know w- whether it's right or wrong and it is in some instances and, and not in others there's always someone to blame. And when you're independent, there isn't anyone to blame. And that completely changes your focus on everything that you do.
2: OK, I would say um, I I was born in the same year as you um, and uh, Scotland changed a lot after devolution it changed massively i lived in london as well i moved there for the same reasons lack of economic opportunity opportunity here in scotland lots of opportunity down there london loves scottish irish people they work hard so they're always getting employed down there in the early 90s when i was living there so um but when i returned to scotland and again also being in the netherlands for five years Scotland's transformed after devolution so i see a lot of positive changes so i think you know more more can come through independence and being a currency issuer as opposed to a currency user Uh, very
1: much so very much so you give people responsibility and people respond that's just
2: as old as the hills we know this as long as we get enough people who want it we've got to have enough people who want it so according um, to brian o'boyle and kieran allen the authors of tax saving ireland uh they think that Ireland is a tax haven. What's your feeling about that? And what's the impact the global minimum corporation tax going to have on Ireland?
1: Well, first of all, the the global minimum corporation tax is going to make our tax revenue rise. That's the first thing, right? Because any any country that raises income... Look, um, Ireland has signed up to this global minimum tax, right? So, suddenly, so, therefore, you're not a tax haven, right? You're actually saying, yeah, we're going to do this, right? Did Ireland use taxes its values Absolutely. Should every small country use it? Absolutely, right? Tax is a policy, right? It's not something that is a given. Now the question is: the the, the two authors you mentioned uh, are are also, as far as I remember, and certainly Kieran is a member of the uh, Socialist Workers' Party, right? I've done a gig with Kieran, I like him, right? Uh and, and 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 I've done gigs with them, so so they're coming from they're coming from an anti-capital view, right? That's 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 their DNA. I get that, but I suspect that colours their judgment, right? Uh, will foreign capital pull out of Ireland if and when our tax rate goes to fifteen percent and therefore is like everybody else's? No, because. Once and this, this again comes out the globalized world is a world of where sovereignty is less than watertight. It's a world of the free free flow of people and the free flow of capital and the free flow of ideas. And I can't see the situation emerging where Ireland becomes profoundly unattractive for American capital. I, re- I really can't see that. I also don't think that it's an either or that if the capital comes from the United States, that in some way it has a home to go to. This seems to me to be a bizarrely domesticated view of how the world works, right? Is that the vast majority of capital in, in the world is homeless, right? It's, it's actually homeless. So... This idea that when we talk about it, that Ireland wouldn't change our exchange rate because we had this tiny little pool of capital, we didn't want to lose it. That's like nineteenth century thinking. We're now in a completely different world. and 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 and, and the socialist workers guys need to need to get with that idea. I don't think that some of their objectives and some of their criticisms are not absolutely valid. They are. But I'm not sure that Ireland is a taxpayer, and i but I do think that Ireland needs to close down brass plate companies, you know, Russian companies with, you know, we've got to close that shit down because that doesn't do us any favours. However, give me a small country that doesn't use its tax and I'll give you an idiotic I want
2: to know, do you think that Ireland has become too centralised around Dublin? And has there been much spreading of the civil service around the country?
1: Well, if you look, I mean, you're talking about Netherlands. Netherlands has got an extraordinary... Uh, disparate population. They have many, many cities of a hundred thousand. Right, right. When I say many, I'm talking dozens. Right. Now, that shows a an un, in a tiny country, an amazing ability not to allow Amsterdam suck in all the resources or Rotterdam. Denmark likewise. You know, some so substantial. Small cities, 80,000, 90,000 with their own industries. Ireland uh, has got a centralising weakness and it stems largely from the dominance of our form of government, I think. That uh, we have a very, very elaborate PR system, but the default position is those fellas up in Dublin, right? Uh, and I think that in the future, for example, because we've got to deal with the small difficulty of Northern Ireland quite soon, that uh, Ireland will become, or should look at the Swiss model of direct democracy and deep federalization to, uh, for, for a variety of reasons, one of which is to to give Northern Irish unionists a different option, that they could be actually almost self-governing within a new structure. So I think that that would be, I think we, we're far too, uh, we're far too centralized. Uh, there were efforts to decentralize the civil service. Uh, I think they were kind of Mickey Mouse efforts. But I suspect that a, if a new government were to come in and were to really think about decentralizing the civil service, it would make a huge difference. Because it's a, it's a small country, you know, it's got a good road network now, didn't have for many years. And you can do that decentralization very, very easily. And, you know, this Zoomy sort of carry on and all that. So I would hope that we move that way. And look good. at the Netherlands or Denmark as a good model.
2: Yeah. The, now, the other thing that you talk about a lot in your podcast, as well as the housing crisis, and is this, again, something that's really particular to Dublin, or is this a crisis that's shared across the whole of, of the Republic?
1: Well, it's really a rental crisis. Um, that's where things have really got out of whack um, for many, many people. It is really it is both a rental and a, and a price. Yeah, it is, a, it is Dublin-centric. And again, decentralisation would... Definitely change that. I mean, the the, the west of Ireland, the south of Ireland, it's a gorgeous place to live. Not if you bloody commute every day, in you know, in your Honda Civic up and down the road. So, I think that you know the housing crisis, and here Scotland is an exemplar. You know, Scotland has, and certainly up until recently, built lots and lots of council houses, lots and lots of, of state houses. In fact, I read a statistic that. Scotland is second only to the former Soviet Union in Europe in the amount of people who live in state housing. Uh, we look at Glasgow, we look at the prices in Glasgow, and we think, "Wow, that's so cheap—rents, house prices, etc." You know, unless and until we build more houses for poor people, and ironically, more houses for rich people, we won't solve it because there is a shunting on effect. You know, if, we, if you don't, and, and again, a lot of the Arguments, a lot of people think, you know, how, why are we building posh apartments on the Dublin Docklands for rich folk? And the first thing I would say is, look, uh, we are not building anything. Some developers are building them. That's the first thing. Second thing is, we got lots of evidence from Finland, which keep very good data on this, shows that if you build posh houses, so no, sorry, if you don't build posh houses, right, the people who have that income then fight the middle ground for those houses. And the people in the middle ground fight for the houses that used to be workers' houses, and the poor workers end up homeless. So there's a shunting on effect. So even if you build really posh houses for rich people, it has an amelioration effect because those people are then out of the public market. So I would think Scotland's quite a a good example of continuing to build state houses. For people, for ordinary people, and people below a certain threshold of income. Now, maybe yep. I'm getting it wrong, but it does seem to me that you don't have a housing crisis like is, we do.
2: What about your healthcare system, David? Is it moving towards privatisation? Is it semi-privatised? What's going on with the healthcare system in Ireland?
1: I've always found this very interesting question dealing with people who live under the NHS. No other country in the world has a system like the NHS, which is very. I mean. People in Britain have said the only religion the British people believe in is the NHS, right? Uh, for me, my relations in Northern Ireland, for example, my in-laws, right? Uh, the A private a public health system underpinned by private insurance is actually the norm, right? This is the German system, the French system, the Italian system. All, you know, everyone has it, right? Britain... Uh, This idea of free at the point of entry is really bizarre, and it's very, very outdated, it seems to me. And the reason it is, is you queue. Like, Britain has the worst outcomes in COVID. The worst by by a country mile. Is there a reflection of the health system? I don't know. But you have to ask a few questions. So basically, you've got two ways of doing it, right? If you're free at the point of access, you basically have very long queues, and people die needlessly because they're queuing, right? And people suffer needlessly because they're queuing. And the way in which you ration out the the resource that is health is you basically say we all wait. So uh, I'm always amazed in Northern Ireland how long people wait for operations, right? Basic operations, particularly the elderly. So then you've got a situation like Ireland where you have half the country pays private insurance. We have medical cards for people who can't afford uh, or who are under a certain threshold, and we've sort of sliced up the health system. Now that leads to, lots of people say it's a two-tier health system. I think it probably is, okay? I think it probably is. I think that if you're very, very rich, you'll get seen quicker uh, than if you're very, very poor. Uh, But I think that underpinning this is a much more efficient health system in terms of access. Because what you have is you have the private side get seen quickly, Liberating resources for the public side, so uh, I'm not sure. I would think the German model is much more interesting for us than the NHS. And the German model is full, uh, private and employee-contributed health service.
2: I can't see how the other one works efficiently. Mm, well, um, I think if you, I know this is. A enough money and resources into it as well and resources is an important yeah, thing. Look, look, you know in Northern Ireland on average people take nine
1: times more pills than the south
2: why right because they're free yeah but that could also be down to the demographics and what's going on with their health as well so um, I, yeah, but I'm gonna, I'm gonna disagree with you on the NHS I, I, know,
1: I know you would, yeah. but I, I just find the I just find the cult of the NHS when you contrast with the outcomes of the NHS vis-a-vis any other health services in Europe, It's appalling. So it's clearly not a model for anybody. It's an ideological totemic structure that British people hold on to, because they've largely not thought about the rest of the world. And that's a problem with Britain is this insularity of thinking. So they don't know what happens in Germany. They don't know what happens in Holland. They've never asked a Danish person, do they pay for private insurance? The Danish person says, yeah, of course we do. That's how it works.
2: Yeah, well, I mean, I did live in the Netherlands, and they have moved; they've changed to a more privatized system. And my husband feels that the Netherlands is a less friendly place to live in now. So that's that's his opinion. But um, just, I have to disagree with you about the NHS. I think it's massively underfunded. But um,
1: using insurance as a way of paying for healthcare makes a lot of sense as long as you can try and ensure that the vast majority of people have access to that insurance. And that's what I think we're trying to do. And it takes a while.
0: We were speaking about the National Health Service there and you mentioned the UK. And one of the peculiar aspects of the UK is its relationship to the National Health Service, as you said. But can you think of any other ways um, when you're looking at the British economy that it seems so peculiar from anywhere else on the planet?
1: Everything's peculiar about the British economy. Uh, Look, it seems to me that from about the 1970s, uh, Britain made a collective decision to run down its manufacturing base and to replace that with a service economy based around finance, more or less in London. Uh, And that was underpinned by openness, by tolerance, by acceptance of immigrants, by acceptance of capital, by open trade, etc., And I I think the idea was that as we run down manufacturing, we will run up this service sector in London. This service sector in London will generate a massive surplus, okay? And with that, we will use that massive surplus to ameliorate the regions. Uh, The the idea, this was before, you know, this idea of killing home rule with kindness, which is Mm. an expression in Ireland, right? So that's what we'll do. And then... Hopefully, over time, those regions will recover the Midlands, the Northeast, the Northwest, uh, and ultimately we'll have a balanced economy. But the dynamo is the service sector. And then, as a result of that, there has been an active use of the exchange rate to try and keep Britain competitive. I don't think any other country talks about exchange rates in the way in which British economists do as mm. a panacea for things, you know. And that comes from the sort of winggodly godly Cambridge uh, ideas of thinking about the economy. Well, of course, it comes from Keynes. You know, it, come, it, it comes from the very activist Cambridge way of looking at economic management. And uh, so Britain made big bets over the last 40 years. And the big bets were finance, housing, services. And you can't say they haven't been unsuccessful. They have been quite successful at maintaining income per head that's still very high, general GDP level, which is, what, the fifth or sixth biggest in the, in the world, la, 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 um, This is why I don't understand Brexit, because Brexit's promise is to subdue that huge part of the economy that is finance, to opt out of trading arrangements, to... Uh, try and rebuild manufacturing in certain areas. Um, and again, I come back to this idea that um, manufacturing is very, very hard. It's not easy mm-hmm. to build things. Like you know, you take something like this, right? These, are, these things are hard to build, right? To mm-hmm. do it perfectly, do it better than the Japanese or the Germans or the French or whatever. And sometimes you can be just too far behind the game. This is my point. So I think that what Britain will have to do or should do is ironically do a bit, something like Ireland did, attract in foreign capital, right? And realize that maybe you won't be able to build your own brands, but maybe you can just piggyback on other brands. Mm-hmm. Um, and in order to do that, you have to give up on this idea that you can create national champions is what the Tories are talking about now. Yeah, yeah. And and I think it's a, it's a very tricky thing because you know the UK is still 60 million people, it's still huge. Uh, It is still a market leader in, I don't know, the Premiership, New Zealand. I don't say this glibly. I mean, Premiership is an amazing, amazing product, right? Uh, It's sold all over the world. It attracts in the best footballers, yada, 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 right? Um, It's a service industry. I'm not sure that Britain can go back to heavy or even light manufacturing as easily as Whitehall believes, or seems to believe.
0: Well, I just wonder if 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 we're believing the the hype and because maybe I'm a bit more um skeptical than you are, but just because the conservative government are saying they want to do this doesn't mean that they're going to do it and but, uh, you know, and I, I think I think Brexit was much more about how to carve up the economy and how to make it much easier to 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 privatize and to and to and to take revenue from. I think it was less about this idea of championing, championing Britain, can, British kind of I, ideals. But yeah. in, in terms of where, where we are as the, as, as the UK economy, it doesn't seem like there's many other economies that are like the British economy and relying so heavily on the idea of rentism and how inefficient yeah. and how unproductive that is as is, is an economy. Is that something you would agree with?
1: Know, the UK is a rentier economy. There's no doubt of that. Mm. And, and what we can see is not just a rentier economy but it's captivated by short termism really captivated by short termism mm-hmm. and what you can see is if you look at you know gross value added i think the only part of the uk that actually has got a surplus is, is london so the rest of the uk can't pay for itself i mean that's an amazing thing to say mm-hmm. for a big big economy and of course the rentier capitalism leads to corruption, the chumocracy, all that sort of stuff. This very which
0: we're seeing now.
1: Yeah, which you're really seeing now. Mm. And uh and there's also things that, you know, as an Irish person, you know, the class system in the in England, I mean, I was amazed by it when i lived in London as an adult. I lived in London pulling pints and working on sites as a kid, as a teenager. But when I went as a as a as as an adult to work in the city, The classism perplexed me. I I thought it was kind of a joke initially. Mm -hmm. You know, people who spoke with posh accents were kind of regarded as better than the other ones. I really thought it was kind of a joke. How the fuck no, they actually actually think this? Um, And of course, if if you have a very rigid class system and you have a rentier economy, it means that more and more resources are sucked into these kind of buffoon class. You know, like a drone class. <laughs> but they are. like I mean, I, I used to look at those upper class people, oh. the fuckers with those little rings. You know those little rings they have on the side? Yeah. And I just thought, man, I mean, these people it's, are, are beyond it's such me. An,
0: absolutely. And it's such an interesting per, um, Perspective you've got there, Be, you know. I, I was just watching something just recently, uh, and and I think by the by the accent of the lady being interviewed, I think she was in Plymouth. I think she had an Irish kind of hint somewhere in her in her, in her accent, and she was talking about Boris Johnson, and she said that man of the people thing again. And and you hear this consistently with people yeah, describing Boris Johnson as a man of the people. And I couldn't think of a, a poorer definition for someone like him as a man of the people. Is that, that is that, that kind of classism yeah, personified? I mean that
1: that fellow wouldn't last a day in Ireland. He really wouldn't. I mean that type of creature. Hmm. I mean, you take your children on the far side of the road if you saw them coming up to you. <laughs>
0: <laughs> well, I think that's what's happening in Scotland, isn't it? There? There's a clear gulf between yeah. his perception you know, in Scotland of, of him and and, and his government than, than the rest of the UK.
1: I think it's fair to say that, you know, when it came to Irish independence and that idea of running your own affairs and, and whatever, I wouldn't underestimate the great team. How do, how do I put this diplomatically? I wouldn't underestimate how much Irish people hated people who sounded like that. And I mean this viscerally mm. uh, because of the way in which native people felt that they were being treated by outsiders. And I think people really felt that. I, 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 I find the Boris Johnson phenomenon hard to understand um, because he's definitely not a man of the people. Uh, but i also feel that in england in particular there is an excessive deference to posh people to people who speak with a certain accent and that i think that that has to change I really, I really do i mean it's it's because i i think that you know if you if you look at the amount of british prime ministers that went to oxford and cambridge i think oxford in particular i think it's almost all of them apart from John Major in the last 50 years. And you think, for example, the college that I went to and teach in is Trinity College, which is you know, meant to be the old Thai university, has only produced one shock in 100 years. Leo Varadkar, the only one who ever went to Trinity. Wow. Because going to the posh university acted against you. <laughs> Yeah, you know what I mean? Because people said, ah, well, we, we don't want to be ruled by people like some Mac Williams yeah. and Veradker who went to Trinity. We want to be, you know. So the, these, the way in which our societies have uh, progressed is very different. And I suspect Scotland will progress very different. like Ireland. I think you will progress very like Ireland.
0: Uh, that, that's really interesting. I, I've just finished reading The Raggy Trouser of the and yes. it's a fantastic, I mean, it's an it's an incredible book. But what came out of that was we're still electing the people, and you know, this was in the eighteen seventies, eighteen eighties. We're still electing the people who've done us who've done us down thinking that somehow the fact that they've had success is yeah. gonna is gonna allow them to be successful for you rather than realizing that the reason they've been successful is because they've taken advantage of you and we're now electing them into positions where they're able to really take advantage of us yeah. was fascinating when you're looking at the types of characters in that book up written 130 years ago and yes. who we have ruling the government now. It's incredible. Yeah look
1: you know I, I think that I think that if I were Scottish, I would have no fear of an independence movement. I think that with respect to the currency, which comes the issue, you already issue your own banknotes, right? These are very important things. You already issue and mm-hmm. use Bank of Scotland notes, right? Initially, you could do what we did, tie to Sterling if you wanted, or you could operate like an ERM system, which we did very effectively. Well you might have to devalue, but I don't think you will. And then you can progress to a Euro situation. I don't think I don't think this is as big a deal as people imagine it to be, right? Um and I, I think the Scottish nationalists should say, Look, this is what we're gonna do.
0: So small nations like Ireland and Scotland, we don't have a large internal market, so a lot of the growth comes from exports. Has to. How- how, how do you see or do you see that changing in a world that is more concerned about uh, climate and emissions and these other things that kind of that, that, that are always bolted on to export? I, mean,
1: I think that a country like Ireland exports services. So they're actually probably climate mm. quite neutral, I would say. Right. So uh, um, but we're 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 we're, uh, we're particularly poor uh, in terms of our own domestic use of resources. Uh I would much prefer to see uh, us, I mean, Scotland has nuclear capacity. That's quite impressive, right? Um, And I would prefer to see us going down that route uh, as well as renewables. And I think that will happen. I think that will happen. But your question is, you know, do you go for steady state growth because of your environmental concerns? Maybe yes, maybe no. But it's very, very difficult to predict how environmentally sensitive economic growth rates will come. So in the past, economic growth was very clearly a resource issue, and it always and, and and every time created problems for the environment. I'm not sure that's gonna always be the case, but I do think that you know we need to find a new much cleaner source of energy. And we need to reduce our energy consumption at the same time. And I would say nuclear is part of that cocktail of solutions. Um, And I think, you know, we'll find that over the course of the next 10 years, more and more countries will increasingly use smaller and smaller nuclear power plants I mean, the Danes and the Swedes have got floating nuclear operations now and i, I think that's that will be something that, that that'll be part of the solution and i think Scotland's quite ahead of that
0: yeah certainly certainly when we look at renewables the, the scottish government talks a lot about sustainable growth and and a lot of its growth does come from its kind of very ambitious export strategies i think they're looking for the scottish food and uh, food and drink sector to double from I mean, it's at like 1.5 billion to 3 billion in the next 10 years but if every country every small country in the world is looking to greatly
1: um yeah no i know what you mean like this is zero yeah yeah yeah
0: it
1: is it is um you know with the, we'll see like the you know the the one thing we know about the environment is that these are targets that are missed all the time and uh my sense is that unless all governments really, really focus on penalizing emissions. So for example, you know, cars should be made even more expensive than they are. Public transport should be made free, I believe, everywhere, like like state schools. You know, the idea that, you know, we would charge our young kids, infants, to go to primary school. You know, I, I think you make public transport free. You issue a perpetual bond to pay for that. And that's just part of the way you do things. And uh, you basically change people's behaviours.
0: Earlier this year, the Scottish Government created the Advisory Council for Economic Transformation, and a few of folk like you got a call. Mark Blythe and Mariana. Mark Mark's, Mark's, Mark's great. Yeah, yeah. Did you did you not check your voicemail?
1: <laughs> you can't be employing outsiders like me. Uh, <laughs>
0: what 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 would your advice be to the Scottish government that looking ten years ahead? If you were sitting, you know, next to Mark and and and, and Mariana, what would you be saying to the Scottish government? They should look for in that kind of ten year horizon. Is,
1: first of all, there's nothing to be afraid of with respect to independence. In fact, there's from what I can see, it's almost all upside. Uh, what you do is because, as I said to you, it's how a nation grows up. It's how it's how you, you walk tall in the world. It's like you're independent. You are a sovereign nation that deals with its own problems, figures out things. If things go wrong, it's your fault. If things go right, it's probably, you know, you can pat yourself on the back and you you create a vision for your country. And that vision, you can actually put together the structures to achieve that. So the first thing is that independent countries work, okay? That's the first thing, right? And they work extremely well. And Scotland is reasonably homogenous. It is, it's got, it's amazingly well situated for renewable energy, for all sorts of areas. Then you can take, okay, the Irish approach, maybe attracting foreign capital, all that sort of thing. I think just go for it. And if the currency is a big issue, well, you know what? Diffuse that issue. Diffuse it, right? Make it go away. That's the whole idea. And what you've got to appeal to is, the. if you look at small economies, New Zealand, Singapore, Ireland, Israel, all the Finland, Denmark, all these countries, they've all achieved extraordinary things off a pretty flimsy base. And what they have achieved is they've managed to liberate the creative impulses of their own people. And I go back to that idea that I started with that half of the Irish story is about what we felt like ourselves and how we moved to become a much more open society and how that openness created the catalyst for people backing themselves, for people deciding to set up their own little companies to do their thing. All of that is there. That's there for the taking. I mean, that's that's what's possible or you can just go through this decline that you're going through at the moment like it's it's the, the, that's the choice you know the scottish decline vis-, vis vis ireland is so obvious economically you shouldn't even have to go over that again and it's so unusual because it never had to happen but it has happened so i think you just say we could be this warts and all because We've loads of things to fix still. Or we could just continue to be a concubine of London. It's your choice.
0: Well, I think that's a wonderful place to, for us to finish on. David Williams, thank you so much for your time. Well, uh, we total. really appreciate it. And all all, all the best. And uh, hopefully we'll see you again soon. We'll see you soon. Cheers, Wim. Take care. Thanks, David. Bye. Perfect. Thanks.